seek it. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, I, I did prison ministry for many years, for about six years. I every Monday morning went and, and did an hour and a half Bible study for, for those in, in the sex offender unit there. It was a great privilege to present the gospel and, and to speak to them. But what I found over and over was that they would come in and say, look, we know Christ or, or we've, we've, we've prayed that prayer. We've done that thing because nearly every group that came into the prison after every presentation would say, okay, now you got to raise your hand. Now you got to sign this card. Now you, you know, some emotional story. You better right now, you know, repent right here. Because that I think is an inappropriate pressure. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 12 through 17, and we'll again be focusing on verse 17, really the last several words of it for this morning, but Acts, excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Please be seated. I had the privilege this last week of touring Washington, D.C. with a group of about, I think we had about 83 teens, about, oh, about 40 leaders, about 125 of us all together. And we enjoyed that time. We were shown all different kinds of things that we saw. We toured the capital uh, of perhaps, if not the most powerful and influen- influential kingdom in the world, certainly one of the most, and perhaps one of the most powerful that has ever existed, the United States of America. We walked through the Capitol. We saw some of the workings of America's intricate political machinery. We sat under the statues of America's great men. We were directed through the halls of the mighty Pentagon, the biggest military building in the world. We even peered into the room where America's first and perhaps greatest president, George Washington, took his last breath. But in all this grandeur and history, there was one name and one person that was conspicuously missing, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, now the name of God was mentioned, now to be sure, mostly by the dead in their quotes and in their legacy. But the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, was certainly not given his due. And we had the privilege of the time while we were there that week, sometimes in the evening, sometimes in the morning, depending on our schedule, of working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. It seemed that that was a a perfect message 
for the tour of, again, a great kingdom, as it were, a great nation and its halls of power, because the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is that all apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is vanity. All apart from a fear of the Lord is meaningless and worthless, a chasing after wind, life merely under the sun. And if you look around, you'll see the blue t-shirts. Feel free to ask some of those teens or adults what they learned, not only about history and about Washington, D.C., but particularly what they learned about moving from vanity, which is where the book of Ecclesiastes starts in book one, to fear, which is where it ends in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the end of all things. Really, the, when all is considered, the end of all things is this, that we are to fear God and keep his commandments, for this applies to every person. And our first night, we talked about the fact that every man comes into this world in vanity. And Solomon, the greatest, perhaps, of, of men, the, the, the wisest of all men, it would seem, and perhaps the richest and most powerful, as he pursued all of the various things that his power and wisdom provided him, as he pursued labor, as he pursued pleasure, as he pursued wisdom, as he pursued possessions and power, his remark, when all that was done, when he pursued it all the fullest, was this is vanity. This is, this is something that doesn't have any value beyond simply the pursuit of it during this life. It doesn't last into eternity, and therefore it's worthless. I'll leave it all to someone who comes after. So our first night, we discussed how we might reject that vanity. In our pursuit of all of these other things, all of the things that we think the world will provide, if we have them only, we have nothing. And what better place to do that than in a place in our world, in the nation's capital, where they think they have everything. And yet they have as as it relates to our Lord Jesus Christ, if they do not know him, they have nothing. Well, that was our first night. The second night, we then talked about embracing eternity because that's chapter three where Solomon says, God has placed eternity in their hearts. You see, if man didn't know about God at all, perhaps he could be satisfied with things that are less than God. But God has made sure that that's not possible. He has placed eternity in the heart of all men. They know that there is a God. They know that he exists and they suppress that truth. And he will not let them fully suppress it. They all know that he is there in creation and in conscience. No one escapes the sun. The sun always rises. The sun always sets. Solomon makes that point to go up and down and up and down. Well, every day it cries out that there is a God. And our conscience does the same. So we talked about what it means to truly embrace eternity. That is to embrace the very purpose for which we were created to give glory to that great God. Instead of being stuck in vanity, to give glory to him. And how we might, we talked about how we might do that. How it is that we become rightly related to the creator of the universe And so we rejected vanity and we embraced eternity. And then chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes is a powerful passage which speaks of guarding our worship. It says, when you come, it says, guard your worship when you come to the house of God, lest you come and offer the sacrifice of fools. That is to actually enter to worship God, to enter into his house to worship him, and yet not be rightly related to him. That's the ultimate vanity. To come and pretend that you are worshiping a holy God, and yet you have the heart of a fool. That is, not someone who is unintelligent, doesn't know what's going on in the world, but someone who says in his heart, there is no God. They, don't, are, they are not rightly related to the true God. It's vanity. It's foolishness. It's a lack of sincerity, which is deadly. And so we talked about how it is that we guard our worship if we're true believers, that we come with not only lips that speak the name of God, but hearts that desire him and, and pursue him. And if there were unbelievers, and most likely there were on our camp, how everything they do is, is a worthless worship. They can come and sit and read and hear and sing, but if they don't know the true God, then they, their, their worship is worthless. So we rejected vanity and we embraced eternity. We, we sought to see how we might guard our worship. And then we talked about in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 through 10 about the, the depravity that man is, is born into. 
Solomon references his point. He said, Wait, everything is vanity because man is depraved. That is, he is tainted in his nature. Everything he does is tainted with sin. And therefore, he can never truly break out of the vanity that he experiences. Nothing he can do will release him from the vanity of his own condition. The worthlessness of all that he does. He's powerless in and of himself to make that change because he's born into the world crooked, as it were. He's born bent. Every man is born equally, as it were, tainted with sin. And so we talked about how we fight that depravity. First, to be rightly related again through repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus And then if we are believers, we still fight the sin that remains. How do we fight that? Setting aside the things of the world that call so strongly. And again, remember, we're walking through the streets of Washington, D.C. Beautiful monuments, great men. These things that call and say, this is meaningful. You know, one of my heroes is George Washington. That is on an earthly plane. I just finished a a biography of, of his and all the things that he accomplished. And again, in an earthly sphere of things, a great man. I mean, I've never been to Mount Vernon. I had the chance to look into his bedroom to see where he died. And yet, as far as I can tell from history and from things that are mentioned about him, he never committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. His life ultimately and all those things that he pursued, all the stuff that he did, it ended up being what? For him, vanity. It was turned over to someone else. Think of what George Washington would think now. He's not thinking about us now. But think of what he would. It just it, it struck me. It was just like Solomon said. I did all this work. I, I built this country on the, on the sweat of my labor and the work of my hands. And I turned it over like I was supposed to instead of becoming the king like I could have been. And now it's like this. All is vanity. Wow, what a great place to be considering that truth. That we'd have to fight our depravity. So we talked about that. And then we're all building towards our final night in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 when it says, when the end of the matter, when all is considered, the end of the matter is this, fear God. And so we talked about how to pursue fear. And that really brings us to our text this morning Because there is no fear of God apart from a recognition of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in our text, where we stand is that the King has begun his ministry. He's entered that ministry through baptism. He has then been taken into the wilderness and succeeded where the first Adam did not in overcoming temptation. He's been ministering for about a year, we understand, from the book of John in various various places. And now he begins his preaching and teaching ministry, his ministry of, of miracles and healing The kingdom, he will say, is here or come near, and the king is performing his work. And he is the one to whom we must be rightly related if we would ever properly honor God and reject vanity. For God will not receive worship. He will not be honored apart from his son. He cannot be. We cannot simply say the name of God or even know the Old Testament God unless we know him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we'll see this morning is that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, our great Savior, to whom we have the privilege of bending the knee in humble worship and total acceptance of His atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Again, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, our great Savior, to whom we have the privilege of bending the knee in humble worship and total acceptance of His atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Drop your eyes down to the text, verse 17. We began this last week. We're going to finish this verse. It says, from that time, and that's kind of our code phrase for the, the beginning of the official preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus. He had taught and preached and, and even done miracles before this. But the synoptics center this, that is his beginning of his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles in, in accordance with the prophecies made in the Old Testament. They center this as the beginning of his ministry. And the groundwork for all of his ministry is this message, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything flows out of this message. 
It's the same message that John the Baptist had. The herald of the king came and said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything starts here. It's the groundwork for everything. And we talked again about repentance. We probably couldn't talk enough about it. And our definition of repentance, remember, was this, to hate the evil of sin, to accept as right the condemnation for sin, to agree with the justice of the eternal punishment for sin, to grieve over the reality of your personal sinfulness, and to make a willful decision to turn away from sin. That's repentance. It's a strong definition, but it's the biblical definition. And the act of repentance, therefore, is a gift from God. No man can can recognize his sin like that. No man is able to turn his own heart towards God in that way. It is a gift of God that he provides. Repentance is a change of heart and mind that is wrought by the Spirit of God working through the truth of the Word of God. It's a call to conversion, not a mental acceptance or or a verbal assent, but a change of the heart that is wrought by the Spirit of God. Repentance comes always from hearing the message, the truth of Scripture. 1 Peter 1.23 says it is through the Word of God, the living and abiding Word of God, that we are born again. And repentance always brings with it a radical change because it is a radical change. Repentance is a change of the heart, a turning away from sin. And then we ended last week with the fact that repentance is a necessary part of belief. It's not, it's not disassociated. They're not two separate things. Well, I'll repent and then I'll believe. When we repent, we believe. To repent is to give away, to to give up our own righteousness, the bribery of God that we seek to bring. You see, we'll come before the judge and we'll say, you know, I know I've done these evil things, but I've done a few good things, so I'm going to slip you a little money under the table of my good works so that you will let me off. The just judge will receive no bribes. He will take nothing that is tainted with sin, that is tainted with unholiness because he is perfect, so he will not receive the bribe of your good works. He will condemn you for both. That is, the good works that you performed apart from Christ as well as the evil works that you did apart from Christ. Both are worthy of condemnation. And we also said that every person is in need of repentance. There are no righteous men and women. You see, the Pharisees thought they were righteous. Nearly everyone we talk to today as we go door to door, as we talk on our own streets here in Maryville, almost everyone thinks they are righteous to one degree or another. Everyone believes that at the end they will be let in, that at the end God will say that was sufficient, but he will not. Because all men are equally tainted with sin. No degrees of depravity, as it were. No man is more tainted by sin than another. Oh, some men perform more evil acts than others. But no man is more tainted by sin than any other individual in the world. So that's, as it were, perhaps we might call it the the negative side of the gospel, the, the bad news. That we are all worthy of condemnation to eternal hell because of the justice of a holy God to pour out his wrath upon our own sinfulness, judged because of Adam's sin, judged because of Adam's depravity that we inherit, and judged because we perform evil acts ourselves. A threefold judgment. So we must repent. And now really we come to the, to the other side of repentance, or the, the, the other side of the gospel, the good news. Repent, why? For. Notice the little word. Here's the reason. Why do we need to repent? Why do we need to turn from sin? Because the kingdom is here, says the king. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason that repentance is needed is that the kingdom has come and that humble repentance is the only way to enter into the kingdom. You cannot receive the king. You cannot enter his kingdom unless you recognize your unworthiness and unless you recognize the fact that you are not already in the kingdom. So we will talk about the nature of the kingdom itself, but before we do that, let's speak of the timing of the kingdom. For this is really important. When he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's a very interesting phrase. 
Does it mean it's already here? Does it mean it's come and gone? Does it mean there's more to it? What does at hand mean? And that's important for us to know because if the kingdom is already here and already done, we're just talking about history and we're not in. So where do we relate to this? And what was Jesus saying when he said the kingdom is at hand? Well, the word itself means to approach or to come near. Essentially to be moving towards, but not not to have fully accomplished. In Matthew 26, 45, it gives us a a bit of a picture of the the timing nature, the time nature of this word. Then he said to his disciples, Jesus said, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 45, he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So the idea of it being at hand was his betrayal, all of the events of his death were about to take place. They were beginning but there was more to come. So it was part of a process. It had started, but it wasn't fully complete. And there will be a whole series of events that would happen. This hour, he says, the hour is near. In Matthew 26, 46, then the, the next verse, he says, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me, that was Judas, is at hand. He's here. He's got work to do. He's going to betray me. He's going to give me the kiss of betrayal. And then all of those things are going to happen. So that's the idea of at hand. It's here. The events are here. And yet there's going to be more that continues on through it. In 1 Peter 4, 7, we have a, another phrase that is used that essentially is a, is a synonym to this. It says, the end of all things, says Peter, the end of all things is near. That's the idea. Right? It is near. Here in some senses, and yet there is more to happen. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And from our standpoint, from Peter's standpoint, that was after Jesus had died and been buried and resurrected, he, he is still saying the end of all things is near. That is, we are in the end of all things, and yet the end of all things isn't finished. We live in that in-between time as the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, the end of all things is here and coming swiftly to fulfillment. Luke uses the phrase, that very phrase, in Luke 10, 9, he says, and he says, he's speaking of his ministry, he says, and heal the, or really, to the disciples as they go out to proclaim the kingdom. He says, heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. That is, they go out, as they go out to the towns, as they perform the healing work, which is representative of the power of the king over death and over demons and over all of the spiritual powers, say to them, and as they preach the word, which they were supposed to do, say to them, the kingdom is near. It's come close to you. You need to respond to it. The kingdom is coming by, as it were. And that's what Jesus proclaims when he bursts on the scene into his preaching ministry. He says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that means the king is here. That's number one on your outline. The timing of the kingdom, number one, the king is here. I have arrived. I've come from heaven to earth. I'm here to walk upon this earth. I am here as your king. I'm the rightful ruler of all things and of this world. The king is here. John the Baptist, again, said the same as Jesus had already arrived upon the earth. But now the king himself says, I come and in my presence, in my being here, the kingdom is at hand. Secondly, kind of bound up in this phrase, the timing is that the king is preparing his kingdom. Jesus was coming to lay the groundwork for all that he would accomplish in his kingdom rule. He is laying claim physically, personally with his own presence to the kingdom upon earth that he would one day, he will one day fulfill. He's always been the king. Let's not misunderstand that. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, but he comes to the earth to proclaim, this is mine. 
I own this. I am the king of this earth. I am the king of these people. The king is here. His kingdom, therefore, is at hand. He says, I'm preparing the way. I'm laying all the groundwork necessary for everything that has to go on in my kingdom, for people to enter into it, for people to become part of it, for the kingdom to grow and be established in the fullness that the king desired. The king is here. The king is preparing his kingdom. But again, this special phrase is used because the kingdom is not complete. With the coming of the king to earth the first time, the kingdom was not finished because the king went back to heaven. The king ascended to ba- back to be with his father and he left a period of kingdom work that needed to be done. He lays the groundwork. He establishes his right to rule and reign. He, he provides the work necessary in his death, burial, and resurrection for people to enter into the kingdom. But there's more work and we're part of it now. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is not complete. Jesus made this very clear in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. You see, the Jews expected that the kingdom, when Jesus, when the king came, they expected that that was it. The kingdom was here. The kingdom was, would be finished. They would enter into it. The king would declare his rule over the earth. He would begin his reign. They would reign with him and everyone else would be set aside. That was their idea of the kingdom. Well, he says this in Luke 19, 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Isn't that fascinating? He said the kingdom has appeared, right? It's near. No, they supposed it was going to appear immediately. That is, it was going to be finished. Why? Because he was near Jerusalem. They're, ah, oh, he's getting close because Jerusalem is the place where he will one day come and set up his physical kingdom, where he will rule and reign. And they're like, here it is. He's close. He's going to enter into Jerusalem. He's going to remove the Roman rule. He's going to call the Jews to himself. He's going to rule and reign with us. And Jesus told him a parable. He said, well, a king went on a journey and he left the people. He left three of his servants with 10 minas. And he goes on. It's another telling of the parable of the talents. And Jesus probably told it multiple times in multiple different forms. He leaves 10 with each. He comes back and the 10, the one man gets, he has 10 more, five more. And then the other one says, look, here's the handkerchief with the first 10. And the king was not pleased. So he lets them know that there was going to be a space or a period of time that the king was not yet going to establish fully his kingdom. D.A. Carson says this, the ambiguous phrase is near, coupled with the dynamic sense of kingdom prepares us for a constant theme. The kingdom came with Jesus and his preaching and miracles. It came with his death and with his resurrection. And it will come at the end of the age. All those are parts of the kingdom. So if you want to know where we stand in our kingdom chronology, we stand at the same place that Jesus stood. That is, the kingdom is near. The king is no longer here in presence, but the nature of his kingdom is such that it is to be entered now. The king has done his work. He's laid his groundwork, and now the kingdom is near to you, although it is not yet finalized. We'll talk more about that at the end. Now, what's the nature of the kingdom then? Why does he proclaim it this way? Why does he say repent first? Or why is, there nece- why is it necessary to repent in order to actually enter into this kingdom? And what does it mean to enter the kingdom? What is he actually calling them to do? Well, the nature of the kingdom first, as is obvious from Jesus's preaching, is that it does in fact have to be entered. Now for us, we might think, oh, obviously you got to get into the kingdom. But for the Jews, they didn't think that way at all. Remember, they thought they were already in the kingdom. So when the king comes, all they have to do is receive the king. They don't, as far as receive him as already in his kingdom, just set him up on his, you know, set him up on his throne because they were already part of it. And he came to tell them, no, 
Even though you are ethnic Jews, you are the chosen people of God, you ethnically, you must still personally, individually enter into this kingdom through repentance and belief, through repentance and faith. And this was shocking to them because they were sure that they had already accomplished this, both because they were ethnic Jews and because they performed the works of the law. The Pharisees were sure that they were righteous, that they'd already accomplished everything necessary. They didn't need to get into the kingdom. They were already in. They just needed the king to show up so they could get all the benefits. Unfortunately, we tend to think that way today, don't we? I was born into a Christian home. I'm in the kingdom. I was born into a Christian nation. I'm in the kingdom. All those other people in other nations, they're not in the kingdom. But I, I read, we're already in the kingdom. We're already there. Literally nearly everyone I talk to is in some way in the kingdom. They're already there. I've done good works. I grew, grew up in a Christian home. I've been to church. I read my Bible. Those things don't get you into the kingdom. It might be part and parcel to it at some point, but the kingdom has to be entered, and it is not easy to enter the kingdom. Luke 13, 24. Says, strive, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. We, something we do at the end of every camp we, with, with our teens, we have devotion groups and we spend time in the Word. And then afterwards, we, we just kind of go through that with their individual leaders and we talk through things. And we kind of build towards the end of camp where we have each of our teens share their testimony. And we try to go before that. We have a lot of teens. And so it, we're pretty sure usually that all of them don't know Christ. So when we ask them to share their testimony, I, I publicly tell everyone beforehand and say, look, guys, if you don't know Christ, then don't make up a testimony. It's not valuable to you. It's not valuable to us. We're not trying to put you on the spot to say, aha, you know, you pagan, how could you do this? We simply want to know, do you know him? So we know how to relate to you and you know how to relate to us. So we, we go ahead of that and we say, look, when you give your testimony, if you don't know Christ, you say, I don't know Christ at this time. And we'd love to share with you more about how to do that and those things, but please be honest. And if you're wrestling with your walk with the Lord, don't say, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I read my Bible and I know that Jesus died for me. It's not a testimony. A testimony is, is grief over sin, recognition of our sinfulness, a turning to Christ and the recognition of what he's done for us, as we will see, and then fruit in the life that comes out of that. And so parents, by the way, what I'd ask you to do for sure is follow that up. We're just following up the work you've been doing for all of these years as we go to camp and ask them about their testimony. And then we send them back to you, either as those who are excited about the Lord so you can continue to shepherd them, as those who, are, don't, who lack assurance, or maybe those who don't know Christ at all. So ask your teen what they said at the time when they gave testimony. What'd you tell those leaders? I want to know because you know, that will help me know how, how, how you are responding. But we did hear, and we always hear, at least some testimonies like this. I grew up in a Christian home, and I always knew the Lord. That's not true. Mental knowledge, maybe. A mental assent to the gospel, but you did not always know the Lord. You never knew the Lord until such time as by his grace you recognized your sin and entered the kingdom through believing in Jesus alone. A willful act, an affectional act, an intellectual act by which you chose by his grace to embrace who he was. If you haven't done that, you're not a believer. And it isn't that they can necessarily pinpoint that time because growing up in a Christian home, it could be at many points during that time. But it did happen, and there was, and essentially what we ask is, are you believing? Not can you point to something in, you know, some time in the past necessarily, but do you believe those things now? Are you convinced of them? Are you convinced of your sin? And it's fascinating to try to flesh that out. Well, Jesus is doing the same. As he starts off his ministry, repent, believe, he's going to make it clear that they must enter into the kingdom, and that doing so is not just a matter of, again, a passive 
being born into some place, or, or simply a passive response. And here's what we have to be very careful. Because in an understanding of the gospel and the fact that God is sovereign in salvation, that he is the one who does the work ultimately, and he receives all the credit for salvation, we have a tendency to, to direct people to be passive when we share the gospel. Because we don't do altar calls, that is, have people come down to the front and, and sign a card or pray a prayer, somehow we've gotten into this habit, perhaps, of presenting the gospel and they're saying, hope something happens. Just kind of sit back and wait for something to go on and poof, you know, there will be something that happens in your heart. No, Jesus called, we call, the gospels call people to strive to enter the kingdom. On the result, or because of what they have heard, the nature of the gospel is seek after that which you have heard. Strive, says Jesus in Luke 13, 24, to enter through the narrow door. You've heard the gospel. The conviction of the spirit is present. The truth of the word of God is there. Pursue it. Seek it. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, I, I did prison ministry for many years, for about six years. I every Monday morning went and, and did an hour and a half Bible study for, for those in, in the sex offender unit there. It was a great privilege to present the gospel and, and to speak to them. But what I found over and over was that they would come in and say, look, we know Christ, or, or we've, we've, we've prayed that prayer, we've done that thing, because nearly every group that came into the prison, after every presentation, would say, okay, now you got to raise your hand, now you got to sign this card, now you, you know, some emotional story, and you better right now, you know, repent right here. Because that, I think, is an inappropriate pressure. You do it right here, and that means it's real. But it isn't, didn't mean that I didn't apply pressure, which is this. Here's your pressure. You've heard the truth. The, word, the, the Spirit of God is working through His Word. We believe that. And so you go back to your cell and you seek the Lord. You pursue repentance. That is recognizing your sin, that you deserve eternal hell, and recognizing what God has done. Pursue that. Get on your knees. Seek the Lord. Repent and believe. But not here in front of me. Do that before the Lord. So this. There, there's a striving, a, a work, as it were, of heart and will, understanding that it is God who receives all the credit and God who does the work in the heart. And yet there is a striving. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.